Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 31, Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 18. And if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 31, 1 through 18. Listen to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, chapter 31 is the last chapter regarding God's instructions for the tabernacle, for the building of the tabernacle. And in many ways, the ending seems a little bit strange and maybe even perhaps a little anticlimactic. Beginning in chapter 25, if you've been with us over the past couple weeks, God has provided detail after seemingly tedious detail concerning his tabernacle, how he would dwell with his people. There's going to be an Ark of the Covenant. There's going to be a curtain dividing the Holy of Holies with the holy place. There's to be a a tent of meeting, and inside the holy place would be a table and, and a lamp and an altar of incense. Outside, there's going to be a bronze altar. Priests, they're to wear very specific garments showing that they work in the tabernacle. 
that they are set, up, set apart. They're to be ordained a certain way. And you would think that as we get to the very last set of instructions for the people of God, that God would end with a little bit more of a flourish. Maybe something more like, and when you build it, my glory will come down. And I'm going to fill the tabernacle, and fire will come and consume the burnt offering, and you will bow down before me in fear and worship. That seems a little bit more interesting to us. But instead, this section of Exodus ends with a discussion of Bezalel and Ahoyab. And it talks about the Sabbath again. I mean, we've already had instructions about the Sabbath. Now we have to hear about it again. But what we find by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not a pointless ending, but really a perfect conclusion. If you've been with us, you'll remember that since chapter 25, it's been six chapters of what and why. Answering the questions of what and what and why. What are you building? Well, you're going to build a tabernacle, clothes for the priests. And why are you building? That God may dwell among you and that you may worship him. Now, at the conclusion, we have a chapter answering the questions of who and when. Who will build the tabernacle? Well, it's Bezalel and Oholiab. And when? Anytime, but not the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath. So let's take each of these questions in turn. Who builds the tabernacle? Verses 1 through 11. Who builds the tabernacle? You see in verse 1 that God says, See, I have called by name Bezalel. And then, verse 6, I have appointed with him Aholiab. Now, by this point in Exodus, God has given complete instructions for the tabernacle and everything that's going to go into it. There's an extraordinary amount of work to be done. There's going to be sawing. There's going to be sewing casting, metalwork. And God says, not only do I want the best materials for the tabernacle, I want the best workmen, gifted artisans like Bezalel and Aholiab. You notice in verse 3 that God says, I have filled them with the Spirit of God. That phrase in Hebrew, Spirit of God, has only showed up twice before so far in the Bible. Once at creation in Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God hovers over the waters during the creation account. And once again, in Pharaoh, when Pharaoh remarks about Joseph in Genesis, in chapter 41, and he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? But really what makes verse 3 in our Bible so remarkable is that this is the very first time in Scripture we see someone is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. It's not that we're to assume no one up to this point has been filled with the Spirit. But we should find it remarkable that the very first mention of someone being filled with the Spirit of God is not Abraham. It's not Noah. It's not Moses even. 
the first person we see filled with the Holy Spirit is a handyman. It's an artisan. His clothing may be overalls and a hard hat, but his work is not any less sacred than the work of Aaron, who had an ephod and a turban. This is important for us to remember. You know, as Christians, it's easy for us to think that the most important work we can do for the kingdom of God is teaching, preaching, writing, maybe missions. It's easy for us to think those are the gifts that really count. But you need to hear from me and, you know, maybe parents who really want their children to only study STEM. That if you're able to hear, if you're able to create things with your hands, if you're able to be creative and artistic and design things and construct things, these two are gifts from God. And it is not any less spirit-filled. You know, in Christian circles, art has certainly has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? It seems that Christians settle for just things that are functional, but not necessarily beautiful. And often, any art that Christians seem to produce come out kind of tacky and cheesy, like almost every Christian movie that I've ever watched. Or those precious moments figurines that we can purchase. And if you have one, it's okay. I still love you. But let me just say that good craftsmanship and the arts can be incredibly God-glorifying. They have a way of pointing us toward the complexity of reality. The arts help us to stop and pay attention to things that we might normally pass over, to pull back the curtain and reveal something more. It's why poetry exists. It's why songs exist. In the world that wants to tell us humans are nothing but a product of evolution, in a world that wants to tell us that religion is really just a way for us to uh, wishful thinking, or, or love is nothing but bodily chemistry so that we could procreate and survive as a species, art says there's something more. Did you know that atheists debating the existence of God treat arguments from music more seriously than any other argument? Because beauty in music defies a naturalistic interpretation and understanding. It's why Albert Einstein told a young violin prodigy after hearing him play, now I know there is a God in heaven. It's why Steve Jobs after he heard Yo-Yo Ma go to his house and give a little personal recital or personal concert for him, teared up, Steve Jobs teared up, and he said, your playing is the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. So, artists in the room, craftsmen in the room, musicians, yes, your talents will be misunderstood. There's a reason why artists are called starving artists. But what you do can testify to the beauty and glory of God. There is my plug for the arts. Now, 
as we come back to our passage, what does it mean when it says that Bezalel is to be filled with the Spirit? When we hear the word filled with the Spirit, sometimes our mind starts turning towards powerful emotional experiences. Seeing visions or some ecstatic phenomena. But the Bible never equates filling of the Holy Spirit with those things. In my studies this past week, I found one definition very helpful. It says, being filled with the Spirit is having from God the ability to do or say exactly what God once done or said. Having from God the ability to do or say exactly what God once done or said. So in the case of Bezalel, his being filled with the Spirit meant that he could correctly construct the tabernacle as God wants him to do it. And a lot of filling of the Holy Spirit has to actually do with speech. In Micah 3.8, it describes Micah being filled with the Spirit so that he might declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. In Luke 1.15, Jesus is said to be filled with the Spirit that he might be persuasive in speech and turn the hearts of the people. In Acts, each account of being filled with the Holy Spirit includes references for a speaker's ability to speak God's word as God wants it spoken. Acts 4.31 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Even in a passage like Ephesians 5.18 where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What comes right after that verse? So that you may address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, to be filled with the Holy Spirit does not refer to a worship style. It's not ecstatic experiences or an emotional high, though we are very thankful at this church for emotions. Rather, it means you're aided by the Spirit to do what God wants you to do, and that often involves speaking the word, but certainly other gifts. So we see that Bezalel is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit that he might utilize his ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship for the construction of the tabernacle. But you notice also, it's not just Bezalel. Verse 6 we see that it's also Aholiab. So these two are going to be kind of in charge of the construction project. But even more, God adds, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Unless, women, unless the women might feel left out, Exodus 35, 25 says, and every skillful woman spun with her hands this is talking about the construction of the tabernacle. And they all brought w- what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. So we see Bezalel and Holiab, the men, the women, all use their gifts and abilities for the building up of the tabernacle and the people of God. Just think about how God ordered his people. The only men allowed to serve in the tabernacle 
was the tribe of Levi. And you would think, oh, they've got to be the big head honchos here. But God appointed men, two men, not from the tribe of Levi, to do this work, to build the tabernacle. One's from the tribe of Judah. One's from the tribe of Dan. Along with other gifted men and women, they would make all the implements, all the tools. They would make that curtain and embroider it with cherubim that divides the holy of holies and the holy place. And they would probably never touch those things ever again. In fact, some of them crafted the Ark of the Covenant. And they would never again for the rest of their lives even see it again because they were not part of the priestly class. And yet, these men and women were given a special task to create these things for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. Now, when it comes to the gifting of Bezalel, and Aholiab, we should not think that somehow these new abilities were somehow downloaded upon them in verse 3. Verse 3 does not say that God gave Bezalel ability and intelligence and craftsmanship. It says God gave them, gave them one gift, which was the spirit. It wasn't as if Bezalel was clueless and was all thumbs and had never used a hammer in his life before. No doubt he was already skilled. And this is how God typically uses our gifts. He takes what we, are, we have already and refocuses and redirects them for his purposes and for the good of his people. Take, for example, when the Spirit of God rushed upon David that he might play the, the liar before Saul and to soothe Saul's feelings. Now, it wasn't as if David was tone deaf before and all of a sudden he could do it. It wasn't as if he had never had a lesson to play the liar before. Rather, this gift given by God and honed by practice, the Lord is now able to use. So, all the time learning to read notes, all the time practicing your instruments, all those times you've been playing scales, all, those time, all the times that Bezalel's dad said, come here, son, this is a hammer, this is a saw, and this is a chisel. Let me show you how to do it. All those times God would now use for his purposes. You see, I think we can have a very truncated view when it comes to spiritual gifts. I don't know if you've ever taken one of those spiritual gift inventories, those tests. You ask, answer a bunch of questions, and then you can see what spiritual gift you end up with. I took one, I think, every year that I was in college. And every year I seemed to be adding to my gifts because it was always something different. You know, I couldn't decide who I was. And I think it's sometimes useful to take those inventories, but I don't think the Bible means to give us an exhaustive list of all the gifts. So oftentimes when we think about spiritual gifts, we think of what? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And we think those are the gifts that are there, those ones that are listed right there. But that's not an exhaustive list. Because if you look at those four lists, they're not all the same. And usually those lists of gifts refer to are specific to what each author is talking about in those letters. 
Here we see craftsmanship, artistry, can be a gift. So there's a broad range of abilities for all men and women and boys and girls. And I think it's fair to say from our passage this morning that you shouldn't bend your mind too much about thinking through, what's the title of my spiritual gift? How can I name what my spiritual gift is? As much as asking, what can I do to glorify God and strengthen the people of God? That's really the question that we should be asking ourselves. Our gifts glorify God and are to be used, it says in 1 Corinthians, for the common good. Ephesians 4 says, for the building up of the body of Christ to maturity and unity. So perhaps you met with somebody and out of love you spoke to them the truth and said, I think you're headed the wrong way. And they repent. Maybe you have the gift of warning. If you maybe take a walk with somebody and you kind of understood what they're going through and you kind of are able to to, to express that, and they all of a sudden have hope in Christ, maybe you have the gift of empathy. If you have people over at your home and you've refreshed them by welcoming them into your home for just that one hour or whatever it is, perhaps you have the gift of hospitality. All of us as Christians have abilities Gifts from God for the building up of the body, and all of them are important. Now, this isn't to say that spiritual gifts are simply natural abilities. Many people who are not Christians have abilities. They have gifts in, they have the ability to teach for administration, for running a business, for playing a musical instrument. But those would not be called spiritual gifts because they are not done for the glory of God and for the building up of his church. If the abilities we have are not relying on God and not aiming to help others, but really just a way for us to feel important. If the gifts we have is really just, if the abilities we have is just a way and we just get upset and we feel quenched because someone says, you cannot serve in this way, if we're upset we can't autonomously pursue our own desires, if we want to use our gifts simply as a form of self-expression and not for the building up of the church because maybe we don't even know the church, then it's not a spiritual gift. So I really believe that the problem of the church isn't so much that we need to identify, know our gift, as much as the problem is that we don't have a desire to glorify God and build up the church. So, Redeemer, let's be the kinds of people that when we wake up in the morning, we give praise to God for our salvation, and then we think, God, what can I do? What, what, what can I do to encourage other people? What, what is something that I have that you may refine it and shape it and redeploy for your purposes? Because there is no gift too small, that God doesn't have a plan to use it. And just like Bezalel in Aholiab. While verses 1 through 11 answers the question, who will build a tabernacle? Verses 12 through 18 answers the question, when to build the tabernacle? 
Verse 13 says, You are to speak to my people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now this is a very bold statement. God has given nearly 4,000 words of instructions concerning the tabernacle. And now he says, above all, indeed, you must keep the Sabbath. Underline it. Highlight it. Don't miss it. Keep the Sabbath above all. Why? Well, there's two reasons, really, why God puts this here. The first is very practical. When the people received the instructions on the tabernacle, it would have caused quite a stir. Can you imagine if someone said, I've just come down from the mountain, and now I have the blueprints for exactly what you should do for your building project. I have it exactly. And so Bezalel, Oholiab, Go grab your tool belts. Let's get going. Let's call up everyone and let's get moving and building. Would have been very exciting. But God reminds them, you don't do it on the Sabbath. The uniqueness and holiness of their task did not allow them to play fast and loose with God's law. If there was anyone who might have felt like they had a good excuse to do something else on the Sabbath, it's Bezalel and Holiab. But God says, my work must be done in my way. In fact, for Israel to breach the Sabbath would undermine the very significance of the tabernacle itself. What's the tabernacle for? It's for worship on the Sabbath. But even more important than the practical consideration is that the Sabbath was fundamentally a sign, it says in verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths for. Why? This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Keeping the Sabbath showed that Israel trusted God and depended on God. That they did not rest on their own strength and wisdom, but rested in the Lord. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the Torah of all the commandments. This is mentioned in the Torah more than any other commandment. In fact, this commandment is mentioned five times in Exodus. The first time is uh, earlier when, back in chapter 16, when God gave the manna from heaven. He says, for six days, six days, you can go ahead and gather the manna. But on the seventh day, you rest because it's the Sabbath. And then he mentions it again in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And then he mentions it again later on in the Book of the Covenant. But at this point, the, the Israelites should have known exactly what God wanted. But he repeats it two more times, here in chapter 31 and then later in chapter 35. Now, why does God repeat it? Because chapters 32 through 34 is the incident of the golden calf. The instructions for the tabernacle come through, and there's going to be the, the, the incident of the golden calf. That's kind of like an interlude. And beginning in 35, they actually build it. They build the tabernacle. 35 to the end. So it's very deliberate. God says, the last thing I want to tell you when I give you instructions for the tabernacle is keep the Sabbath. 
And the very first thing I need to tell you when you start construction is keep the Sabbath. You see the seriousness of it in our passage. In verse 14, it says, you profane it and you shall be put to death. In addition, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. There seems to be a double penalty here. The Sabbath was not business as usual. It's not a day for you to do your own thing. It was important because breaking the Sabbath, the Israelite was showing that she was actually not interested in knowing God and trusting God. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion, a way of saying to God, my relationship with you is not that important. You're not worth the time it would take to get to know you. Verse 18 serves only to highlight the importance of these commandments. God gave to Moses two tablets of the testimony, namely the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God, obviously in in anthropomorphism. So the two tablets, two copies of the Ten Commandments. It's not five on one and five on the other. It's not like as if Moses accidentally broke one, there'd only be five commandments. It's copies because this is what they would do in the ancient Near East, a copy for the king and a copy for the people. Now, there is much more we can say regarding the Sabbath, the principle of the commandment and how it relates to New Testament believers today. I'll go ahead and let you download an earlier sermon from Exodus 20, verse 8, when we talked about the Sabbath in more detail. But let me simply just close with three lessons. The first is delight in worshiping God. Delight in worshiping God. This is the main point of the tabernacle and all its instructions. This is the point of the burnt altar and the priests and the craftsmen and the people filled with the Spirit. God declared in chapter 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst and that they may draw near to me in worship. And surely as God's people today, it's fitting that we set aside one day in seven for corporate worship. And I know sometimes the Lord's day feels like more of a restriction than a delight. Sometimes we think that keeping the Lord's day is what all the things that you can't do. But the Sabbath laws are meant for God's people to take delight in God, to rest in God. It's meant for the people of God to take delight in him and to enter into the very purpose for which they've been created. God knows you're a workaholic. God knows you're prone to trust in your own strength. And God says, come. I give you one day in seven a gift for you to attend to your soul. Second, trust God enough to rest. If you look at verse 17, you see this striking language that the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Think about those two words. The eternal, everlasting, ever-existing God needed rest and refreshment, but here's 
certainly we have human language to describe God, but it's still significant that God himself found refreshment in this rest. Remember that the point of the Sabbath isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's about trusting God enough to rest. The point of the Sabbath isn't to say, "Mm, did you break a sweat today? Did you work too hard? No, it's did you break a trust? The goal of creation is for everyone to rest with the Lord. The Sabbath comes weekly to remind us, cease from your own work. It's a declaration, actually, of our dependence. That life is more than work. And that life is more than family. And that life is more than hobbies. Resting is not all the laws of what we can or cannot do. But to remember that God is able to take care of us. Third and final lesson, enter God's rest in Christ. Hebrews 4.9 says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore to strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The Sabbath commandment is still operative in the New Testament. It's just changed to a different key, transposed to a different key. Hebrews tells us that we rest from our works, any sort of striving for acceptance with God. And the connection here is that if we don't learn to rest in Christ, if we think we always need to earn and prove and merit something with God— if we are relentlessly trying to prove ourselves to other people, to our bosses, to our spouses, to our church, or even try to prove things to ourselves, then we will never allow ourselves to be loved by God. We'll never really know what it means to have grace. And the danger is not just physical danger, but the same double punishment that we see in Exodus. Our souls will be cut off from God and his people. So as hard as it is to rest, it is more important to rest in God. To say, God, you're the one who gives me value. Not my abilities, not my spiritual gifts, not what I can build. But God, I rest in you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you don't know what it means to find your rest in Jesus then I exhort you this morning to come to Christ by faith. Come to Christ by faith. There's only one door to the safe and peaceful and happy rest of God, and that is through Christ. Sin separates from you from God. You will not find rest in your sins. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who paid for your sins, that he rose again and entered into an eternal rest, and he is going to bring with him all who believe and place their trust upon him into that rest forever. Turn to Jesus, and you will be restored to the, to the very rest for which you were created. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> we give thanks this morning. That we, can, that we have given us a day for us to find our rest in you. 
a weekly reminder that you are in control, a weekly reminder that you are our delight and you are our joy. And so we ask, God, that in all these various scheduling that we have and the various abilities that you've given to us, that our hearts would find rest in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.